Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Before we begin our study, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in fellowship, opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to admit or acknowledge any uh, known sins in privacy of our priesthood to God the Father. 1 John 1, 9 promises that at the instant we admit or acknowledge our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that instant, the ongoing sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, resumes. This is referred to in Scripture by various terms such as walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light. And it is in this uh, position that we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to grow, to understand God's Word. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us understand His Word. It's the Holy Spirit who uh, stores it in our soul, brings it to our memory, and makes it profitable for our spiritual life in terms of application. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, as we study your word from Genesis through Revelation, we are impressed with the theme of your grace that you deal with your creatures, with mankind, fallen mankind, not on the basis of uh, who we are or what we have done, but on the basis of your character, ultimately on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And it is this grace, this undeserved favor, this unmerited kindness that is the foundation for our salvation and is the foundation for our future hope. Now, Father, as we study your word today, may we come to a greater understanding of your grace in history and how magnificent that is as it displays to one and all uh, the love that you have uh, for all of your creatures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 7. Continuing our study in Revelation 7, let's have a brief review. In the previous lessons that we have have had on Revelation 7, I have focused ultimately on a theme that comes out of 
the end of the previous chapter. The previous chapter focused on the six seal judgments, and these judgments came upon all of those who were are living on the earth, which is a different concept than the term that's used here for earth dwellers. Earth dwellers refers to a segment of those who lived on the earth. Earth dwellers in Revelation refers to a group that have hardened themselves in negative volition against God. They have rejected God, rejected his grace, rejected his revelation, both in terms of the nonverbal revelation in the heavens as well as the specific revelation in his word, uh, both the written word and in the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. But among those who are living upon the earth, among mankind during this early part of the tribulation, there are many who come to an understanding of the gospel and put their faith alone in Christ alone. It is often uh, believed by people erroneously that the time of the tribulation is just this time of this horrific judgment of God upon mankind. But what we see in Revelation 7 as an answer to the question at the end of Revelation 6 is that God's grace is displayed in ways during the tribulation period that have never been seen before in human history. At the end of Revelation chapter 6, those who are uh, in rebellion against God, who are coming under the judgment, especially that last uh, sixth seal judgment, they cry out and the, the question, who is able to stand? In other words, who's able to survive these judgments? And Revelation 7 comes in the middle of that. The scene is shifting from what is happening on the earth in terms of these judgments to what is happening in heaven in the broader plan of God. And it answers that question in two ways. The first is what we've studied the last few weeks in the first eight verses, which focuses on a set group of Jews that are saved at the beginning or the very early stages of the tribulation period. They are sealed, and that sealing protects them from these judgments, from the wrath of God that are poured out upon the earth. It does not protect them from the hostility of man because we see that many of these 144,000 will be martyred for their obedience to God during the tribulation period. But they are protected from the judgments and these 144,000 that are saved from the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel will be used by God to take the gospel not only to Israel during the tribulation period, not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles throughout the world. And the result of that in just the opening stages of the tribulation period is seen in the second half of this chapter from verses 9 through 17 where we see an innumerable multitude before the throne of God who are worshiping God and they these are the martyrs that have come out from the first stage of judgments they are referred to in the fifth seal judgment and they are uh, those who are given a white robe in chapter 6, verse 11. And they, are, they go to heaven and they, they are praying that God would culminate his judgment. And the answer is, not yet. 
That is because we see this outworking of God's plan. He is accomplishing something even at this stage in the tribulation, even as you see the hostility of the Antichrist, even as you see the intensified persecution from the government of the Antichrist towards all who are believers, even as you see all of this coming to a head during the tribulation period, God's response is not yet. There is something that needs to be accomplished. And so this addresses, as I pointed out at the beginning of this this uh, chapter, the question of why does God allow suffering? But specifically, why is he allowing suffering upon uh, his own, upon believers? These are tribulation saints, not church-age believers, but tribulation saints, those saved during the tribulation. Nevertheless, they are those who will go through this intensified suffering during the tribulation. So part of the answer that we see, uh, uh, part of what's included in this answer in Revelation chapter 7 helps us to understand why God allows suffering and evil to continue in human history. There is a reason and there is a purpose behind that, and we'll wrap that up hopefully this morning as we come to a conclusion at the end of the chapter. So in the first part of the study of this chapter, we saw that focus on God's restoration of Israel, restoration of his plan toward Israel that uh, we looked at last time. This fits within an overall pattern that we have in the Old Testament. For example, in the Abrahamic covenant, there was a promise given to Abraham by God in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that's reiterated uh, in subsequent chapters in Genesis. Again and again, this promise that God has made to Abraham is reiterated, restated, it's confirmed, it's uh, reconfirmed to uh, his son Isaac and to his grandson Jacob, and this becomes the foundation for the existence of the nation Israel and their claim to the land. So there were these three aspects to this promise, the promise of a specific piece of real estate in the Middle East, the promise of descendants that would be innumerable as the stars in heaven or the sands of the sea, uh, the sands of the the, uh, seashore, and blessing, worldwide blessing that would come through Israel to all nations. Now, that's important for understanding what we see happening in verse 9 as uh, John goes to the next stage of the vision and sees a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. This is related to this blessing promise in the Abrahamic covenant that through Israel God would bless all of the nations. These three dimensions to that covenant were later expanded in three distinct covenants, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And I pointed out that in the Davidic covenant, there was a promise that that seed would come through the line of David as David was promised that through this seed, through this descendant, God would establish an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. So we looked at the strategy that Satan had in the Old Testament to block or to stop God from being able to fulfill that seed promise. The first time a seed is mentioned is in Genesis 3.15 when uh, Adam and Eve had just disobeyed God and God promised 
a future deliverer. And in his address to the serpent who had enticed Eve to sin, he said that there would come a time when the seed of the woman would uh, crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so that imagery begins this theme of the seed that goes all the way through uh, Genesis, and you trace that seed promise from that initial promise to Abraham, the promise of a seed, promise of a descendant. And as we see God working this out, Satan is attempting to block that. And we studied the, some of those moves that Satan made in the Old Testament to destroy the line of David. And then, ultimately, that line culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promised seed. He is the one who was the Messiah, the one promised from uh, through the prophecies of the Old Testament to provide a salvation and deliverance for mankind through his death on the cross. And so at the cross, Satan was defeated. His head is crushed there, even though he continues to assault God's people. And because that was that defeat occurred, Satan changes his strategy, changes his tactics. And so the tactic was no longer to block the coming of the seed, for that uh, that was futile. Now his focus is to block the promises to Israel. And so the uh, anti-Semitism of the church age is much more intense than that seen in the Old Testament and it reaches, has reached institutionalized proportions, especially as we have seen in the last century in the rise of Nazism in the Third Reich, but also within uh, Islam itself, especially as it has been demonstrated in the, in the last uh, hundred years or so in their opposition to a resurrection of the people in a na- as the nation in the land of Israel. So we have seen that during this age that we're now in, Israel has been temporarily set aside because of their rejection of Christ, because of their apostasy, but this isn't a permanent state according to Romans chapter 11. But there will come a time when uh, the church will be raptured, taken out from the earth, and then God, that, and that must happen so that God can return his focal point to Israel. And this is what we see described in the first part of Revelation uh, chapter 7. The time of the tribulation, as we saw last time, corresponds to the last seven years in God's timetable for Israel. In terms of that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks or 490 years decreed for Israel, the 483rd year culminated just before the crucifixion, leaving those last seven years. They have been postponed, and they do not... Come into, uh, come into effect until after the rapture of the church. This is one of the reasons why there must be a pre-tribulation rapture of the church is because of the distinction we see in Scripture between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, and the church must be removed before God can shift the focal point back to Israel. So the tribulation begins with these six seal judgments, and at the same time, God is going to seal and preserve the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, so that they can carry out a 
an evangelistic mission to the world. And this is in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and part of the purpose God called out Israel from the very beginning, but they never fulfilled it in the Old Testament. But it will be fulfilled. They will fulfill their mission in the New Testament period. So that brings us up to date to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. So John says, after these things, indicating with the usual terminology that he is shifting a focus, that each of these visions changes, and he reports one, as we saw in verse 1, after these things, I saw four angels. And he talks about the, the, the winds of judgment, the four winds of the earth. This is in reference to uh, usage of the winds of judgment in Daniel uh, chapter 7, verse 1 as well. And then verse 9 begins again, after these things. And then we, we move through uh, this next vision. And as we look at this vision, there's two divisions in verses 9 through 12. This, there's a description of the first part. That is what he sees in the throne, of, throne room of God in heaven. And then verses 13 through 17 will record the explanation of this scene. Verses seven to, or 9 to 12 describe the praise toward God as it, that is exhibited by those before the throne, the same group of people that we see in Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 6. There are uh, six groups mentioned. First of all, there's the innumerable multitude, a great multitude which no one could count. Second, there is one who is on the throne. And this refers to God the Father. God the Father is always described as the one on the throne in Revelation. Jesus Christ does not receive his throne until he returns at the second coming. It's very important to make that distinction. The one before the one on the throne is God the Father, and the one who is before the throne is the Lamb, the second person of the Trinity the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have a group of angels that are also surrounding the throne and the elders. This is a reference to the 24 elders. These are a representative of the church. And then the four living beings, these are those who are identified probably as cherubs who are there uh, before the throne. So we have these six groups. The only addition that we have to the scene from Revelation 5 and 6 is the innumerable multitude. These will be identified as those who come out from the tribulation uh, period. So it is the same scene that we have observed before and spent a lot of time on in Revelation chapter 5 and 6. And the context is that of worship again and the Those who are now worshiping uh, the Lord are those who have come out of the tribulation, those who uh, have been martyred, uh, those who were killed during the judgments in those first uh, six seal judgments. And so we read that this multitude is so great that none could count it. I pointed out before that in other places in Revelation, 
we have large multitudes that are counted. We have the 200 million uh, demon army that is clearly uh, numbered. We have the 144,000 that is clearly numbered. There are other groups within uh, Revelation that are clearly numbered, but this is a number so large it cannot be counted. So this shows that God's grace, those who are saved, even during the very beginning period of the tribulation, uh, are, are, is a tremendous number. We can't count it. And this is a manifestation of God's uh, magnificent grace, even in the midst of judgment. And they come from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages. That's not just tongues. Tongues is an antiquated way of referring to a legitimate language. Now, one point I'd like to make here, just an observation, is that it has been uh, it has been popular among numerous modern missionary organizations to go back to the Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus commissions or uh, appoints the disciples to take the gospel uh, throughout the world. And there, it has become popular among these missionary organizations to argue that uh, Jesus will not return, the end of the age won't come, until the gospel has been taken to every nation, every tribe, every tongue throughout the world. But that's not going to happen, according to this passage, in the church age. That is not going to ultimately happen until we get into the tribulation period and we see the activity of the 144,000. For these of this great multitude come from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues and they will be stand, and languages rather standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It goes on to say to describe them as those who are clothed in white robes and palm branches are in their hands. Now let's address this particular question, what are these white robes and what are the palm branches in their hands? What is going on here? Well, first of all, there are those who will look at this and say, well, uh, they are they must have their resurrection bodies because they have hands and they are wearing these robes. But that is not a valid conclusion. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19 and following, we are told about one beggar named Lazarus, and he is begging outside of the home of a wealthy man who is uh, unnamed in the uh, episode. And when uh, Lazarus dies, the Lord says that he goes to paradise, to Abraham's, in a, which is a portion, a part of Abraham's bosom. And the rich man, when he dies, he went to an area called Torment, part of Sheol. And they were separated by a great gulf. And if you read through the text of that passage, the rich man looks up and he can see, which indicates that he has some kind of ocular ability, he can see across the great gulf to observe that Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, which is identical with uh, paradise. And so he begs, he calls to Father Abraham, and he says, uh, please uh, let uh, Abraham come and touch his finger, 
See, he doesn't have a resurrection body yet. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross. There's no resurrection bodies yet. Take his finger and put it on my tongue that I may be refreshed because it is hot. So this is his request. It indicates some form of interim body that is not the physical corporeal body which uh, we have now. It is not the uh, resurrection body which we receive at the rapture, but it is some sort of uh, intermediate body. It may not be material and physical, but it is some sort of body. The angels have a body. The angels are pictured at times as clothed, yet it is not a physical uh, physical body. So the presence, the fact that they are wearing robes and that uh, they're depicted as having uh, hands does not indicate that they have resurrection bodies yet. They are in an intermediate state. They will not receive their resurrection bodies, tribulation uh, saints do not receive their resurrection bodies, or rather tribulation martyrs, do not receive their resurrection bodies until the Lord comes back uh, and they are resurrected at the end of the tribulation, uh, tribulation period. They are said to be clothed in white robes. Now, the Greek word or the phrase that we have here is the phrase stolas lukas. Lukas is the word for white. Stolas is the word that is translated uh, robes here. Uh, it is the same term that we have back in uh, chapter 6, verse 11. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we have the description of the fifth seal judgment. These are the same individuals, those who are martyred during the tribulation period. John writes in 6.9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and because of the testimony which they held. And then in verse 11, Then a white robe was given to each. This is the same phrase. So the white robe that is described here in, in uh, 7.9 is the same white robe as indicated in 6.11. The term for robe here refers to a long white garment. Sometimes this word was used to refer to the robes of a priest. It is a long white robe, but it is a different word from the word that is used in Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 5. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, if you remember, this is in the letter to the church at Sardis, and this is a promise of a reward to those who are victorious in the Christian life, those who overcome. And in Revelation 3, 5, we read, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, is the way it is translated there. It is a different Greek word. It's the one I've written up there on the screen, hemation. And this can refer, especially when hemation and stolos are used in the same context, hemation usually refers to an exterior uh, robe or garment. This would be something that would indicate a position, indicate a, a, a reward, a, a place of distinction. And so the white robe, the stolas, is what we see all of these martyrs receiving, and it is distinct from the hamadia. Now, there's another thing in context which tells us something about these white robes. It's always important to observe the context. These things are almost always explained uh, by the scriptures themselves. If you look down to verse 13, we have the phrase, 
uh, and the reference to white robes mentioned again as one of the elders addresses John and says, well, uh, who are these who are arrayed in the white robes? That's the beginning of the explanation. And in the answer to that, that uh, the elder, this one particular elder gives to John in verse 14, in the second part of the, the verse, he, he says, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The white robes that these martyrs are wearing are not said to be rewards, such as the white garments of Revelation 3.5, but these are robes that are specifically said to have been made white because they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, this is imagery that is used to indicate the possession of imputed righteousness. When the believer puts, or when the individual puts his faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant, God imputes to the believer a perfect righteousness. This is depicted as being clothed with righteousness because what's underneath is still our unrighteous, fallen, sinful nature, but we receive the imputation or granting of perfect righteousness. That imagery is used in a scene in Zechariah chapter 3 where you have Joshua. This is not Joshua of the conquest. This is a much later Joshua in the period after the Jews returned from Babylon. This is Joshua the high priest, and it is a scene where Joshua the high priest is being accused by Satan of not being worthy to be high priest. And in that scene, it is the Lord who says, remove his garments, that's what you had on, and clothe him in white. And it is a great picture of what happens at our salvation. When we trust in Christ, we are then clothed in the righteousness of Christ, as it were. And the phrase blood of the lamb is a term that refers to his substitutionary death on the cross, not his physical death, but his spiritual death, which occurred during that period from 12 noon to 3 p.m. when God the Father imputed to Jesus Christ all of our sins. And it is at that time that he separated from God judicially as he bears the penalty for our sins. Scripture says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And that is a perfect summary of that transaction that occurs at the cross. Christ, as we, as Christ was, received the imputation of our righteousness, so when we trust in Christ, we receive the imputation of His righteousness. And so these robes that are worn by the martyrs are robes that were washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is a soteriological possession, not a reward possession, so that it becomes clear that everyone has this because they have put their faith alone in Christ alone. That's why back in 511, it states that a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. So, when we look at verse 9, there is this uh, th- this white robe that is 
pictures righteousness. White always pictures a perfect righteousness that comes because of the death of Christ on the cross. This is also seen in a very well-known verse, favorite verse in Isaiah 118, where the Lord says, Come and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And so this is an emphasis on the fact that that God has made them clean positionally, and so that is the basis for their salvation. Then we go on to look at the next aspect of this particular uh, image here, that not only are they clothed with white robes, but they are standing with palm branches in their hands. Now, what is the significance of these palm branches? Well, this is an allusion to one of the feasts of Israel that comes in the uh, autumn. It is called the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. Sukkot is spelled S-U-K-K-O-T-H. And the Feast of Sukkot is described in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 39 and following. And it was to come on the 15th day of the seventh month. And in the uh, Jewish calendar, that is the month of Tishri. And so on the 15th of Tishri, uh, they would have this uh, seven, and now it's eight-day festival that looked back to the time that the Jews were living in temporary quarters in the wilderness. And Sukkot comes from the Hebrew word Sukkah, meaning a a temporary abode or shelter, sort of like a lean-to, and is a, an allusion back to making these temporary shelters when they were going through, uh, going through the wilderness. And so it is a reminder of how God provided for them during the time that they were uh, in the wilderness. And it also anticipates his future provision of a home for them in the millennial kingdom, and this is seen in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, that's in the tribulation period, will go up, this is after the tribulation period into the millennial period, will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So this is a feast that will continue to be in uh, to be celebrated during the tribulation period as it is a reminder of how God has provided uh, for his people in the past. The waving of the palm branches were a symbol of God's blessing upon the nation and a reminder of how God had freed them from slavery in uh, Egypt. So the waving of the palm branches had the significance of expressing victory and freedom. And so the waving of the palm branches in this scene in heaven is a reminder that they have been delivered from sin and that God is the one who has given them uh, the victory over physical death. Incidentally, this year, the 15th of Tishri, uh, comes about in our calendar on sunset on, on uh, October the 13th. And so it, uh, the Feast of Sukkot is observed this year from sunset October 13th to sunset October, uh, October 20th. It's also interesting that this 
festival was also celebrated through a pouring out of a uh, uh, pouring out of water, a libation sacrifice, and each day the high priest would uh, go down to uh, the pool of Siloam and would draw out water, and then would come up to the uh, temple and pour out the water. When Jesus came into uh, Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths in John chapter 7, in John 7, 38 and 39, he related this pouring out of the water to the gift of, of eternal life in the gift of, of eternal of water that springs forth eternally and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So these, this connects this idea of, of water. And this is going to be seen again in our passage in Revelation chapter uh, 7, verse 17, that the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. So what we see as a backdrop to this scene in heaven is the Feast of Sukkoth as a celebration of victory and the free gift of eternal life. Now, we go on to verse 10, and they cry out. They are worshiping God with a loud voice, singing salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, we see this distinction made between the between God, God the Father who is sitting on the throne, and to the Lamb, the two distinct personages, and it is uh, in this uh, praise that they are ascribing salvation to God and to the Lamb, to both both of them, God the Father because he is the author of the plan of salvation and God the Son because he is the one who uh, carried out the work of salvation when he died on the cross for our sins. Now this word that is translated salvation is the Greek word soteria, which indicates more than simply uh, redemption, more than simply justification. It is a broad term that includes the entire plan of God from uh, paying the penalty for our sins to bringing all of his plans for salvation to completion, which occurs through the tribulation period culminating in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to the earth. Salvation is one of the major things that's ascribed to God throughout the Scripture again and again and again. God is uh, said to be the God of salvation. One of the great passages on this is in the 49th chapter of Isaiah. This is part of the servant song and is a tremendous passage related to uh, related to God's provision of the servant who is the Messiah and his provision of salvation. Just look at these two verses on the screen, Isaiah 49.6 and Isaiah 49.7. This is God the Father speaking. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant. So he is speaking to the servant. Who This is a great passage to show at least two divine personages in the Old Testament. Some people say you can't find the Trinity in the Old Testament. Well, you can in several places, and this is one of them where you have God the Father speaking to God the Son. 
He says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Notice the focal point here is salvation related to Israel in the end times. He says, I will also make you a light of the nations. This is the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, I will bless all nations. I will also make you, that is the servant, God the Father is making God the Son a light of the nations, so that what? So that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. That's the, this is the backdrop for understanding this praise in, in this whole scene in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. And then he goes on to say, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and the Holy One. Notice again, the salvation is ascribed to uh, God, the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One. To the dis- and he addresses, this is God the Father speaking, he addresses the Son as the despised one, addressing the servant as the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. And says, kings will, arise, will see and arise, princes will also bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So in this passage we see that throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as the God uh, who is the Savior of all men. Again, in the New Testament we have this same thing mentioned in passages such as 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is one of the reasons why God continues to extend his plan is so that more and more can be saved. We Part of the answer to the question is why doesn't God end history? Why doesn't he end suffering? Why doesn't he end evil? Is because he extends this so that more and more can be saved. And then 1 Timothy 4, 9, God is called the Savior of all men, especially of believers. God's plan focuses on salvation beginning from the very time that man first sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, God begins to reveal to man this plan of salvation. As I alluded earlier in Genesis 3:15, there is the mention of the fact that God uh, addressed the serpent and said, "The seed of your seed will uh, bruise him, that is the seed of the woman on his heel, but he, the seed of the woman, will bruise you on your head, indicating a fatal wound that occurred at the cross. That first uh, allusion there is to the of the gospel is called the proto evangelium or the first mention of the gospel." And so from that point on, God begins to reveal more and more about his plan for salvation as we move through history. And then we come to the passage I talked about earlier in Genesis chapter 12 in relation to the Abrahamic covenant that God said to Abraham, uh, you shall be a blessing. That was a command. You shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth, that is the Gentile nations, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now Israel understood that that was part of their role. It was to be a missionary nation, that they were to take the gospel to the Gentiles. 
although they failed to do that, but it's clear in Psalm 67, uh, verses 1 and 2, and that psalm begins, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth. Israel here is pictured as praying that God would bless them. Why? So that your way, that is the gospel, would be known on the earth, your salvation among all of the nations. From the very beginning, God chose Israel to be a channel through whom the blessings of salvation would flow to the whole world. This was never fulfilled in the Old Testament, but it is fulfilled through the 144,000 and other Jewish evangelists during the tribulation period. And the picture of this multitude before the throne is just one example of how that is fulfilled in the tribulation period. Then we looked at, as we look at Psalm 67 and verse 7, it concludes saying, God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. They understood that that was their role, that was their uh, mission. Again, in Psalm 98, verse 3, we read, He has remembered his loving kindness, that is, his faithful, loyal covenant love. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So this will be fulfilled during the... Uh, tribulation period. Then we read in verse 11 and 12, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing. Notice seven ascriptions here, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, that particular ascription of honor uh, mirrors that that is uh, ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, in Revelation 5.13. There we read, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So this is... Uh, focal point of their worship, and it flows out of an understanding of salvation and God's work of salvation on the earth. It is not just sort of empty, mindless uh, reiteration of these kinds of statements, but it is a, uh, an outworking of this clear understanding of the gospel. Then, beginning in verse 13, we have the explanation of these events through the instrumentality of one of the elders. And this elder comes to John and says, verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And he asked this question in order to focus John's attention to think through who these are and why they're there. And it's effective in that. And John says, well, sir, you know. In other words, you know, tell me. And so the elder then replies in verse 14, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white 
in the blood of the Lamb. Now, we've already covered this verse as we were talking about the uh, martyrs from the fifth seal judgment in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, as well as identifying the white robes. And so this is a simple answer connecting these who are before the throne with those who are martyred in the fifth seal judgment. And the uh, elder goes on to say, for this reason, verse 15, they, for this reason they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Now that word for tabernacle is a word that means his dwelling. And what we see here is a foreshadowing of something that does not take place for all of mankind until Revelation 21. In Revelation chapter 21, we have the creation of the new heavens and the new earth in 21.1. And then John says in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the heavens saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. This is God the Father. The term God always refers to God the Father in Revelation. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And note verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now these martyrs, back in Revelation chapter 7, get a foretaste of that as the Father uh, tabernacle spreads his tabernacle over them and there is this special ministry that occurs related to the fact that they have been martyred and they have gone through this intensified suffering uh, in the tribulation period. And verse 16 goes on to read, They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun be down on them, nor any heat, indicating that there will no longer be the suffering associated with living in the fallen cosmic system, and that not only will there be an end to this suffering, but there is a special uh, ministry of grace to them, and this is seen in verse 17. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God, again, God the Father is the one who will wipe every tear from their eyes. And so there is this special grace ministry from God dealing with them in relation to the intensified suffering that they have gone through in the tribulation uh, period. Now, as we go back and look at this particular a set of verses, verses 16 and 17, there's this statement that they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. This comes right out of a passage in Isaiah 49, verse 10. Again, applying this, we talked about Isaiah 49 earlier. Again, this is applied to Israel in the original context. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down, for he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. Again, what I'm showing you is how these events in Revelation are predicted in the Old Testament and how many, how many things there are in 
uh, revelation that have their uh, background in things that are said to Israel in the Old Testament, indicating that there is a definite Jewish orientation to the seven-year period of the tribulation. Now, in the last verse, the Lamb is the center point. The Lamb is in the center of the throne. He will be their shepherd. This also comes out of the My Servant reference in Isaiah chapter 49. He is the one who uh, guides them. And that's the verb that is used here. He is the one who guides them. He is the one who leads them. And he leads them to the springs of the water of life. This is uh, emphasized again at the end of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It is the water of life that pictures eternal life that is given freely on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. And so it is the Lamb who uh, leads them to eternal life. And then the final statement, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This answers the question that comes at the end of Revelation 6, which is, who is able to stand? Well, these are able to stand. There is the 144,000 from Israel, the innumerable multitude that come from all of the nations and tribes and languages of the earth. God has a reason and a purpose for allowing evil and suffering to continue. And this takes us back to the basic point I've been covering the last several weeks, and that is answering this question, a second question on the screen, how can a loving God pour out such wrath on his creatures or on believers? And the answer to this, as I pointed out at the beginning, goes back to understanding God's character and God's plan. In his character, he is righteous and just, and so his righteousness and justice has to deal with the sin problem. But he is not simply a righteous and just God. He is a God uh, of love, and he is going to do that which is best for his creatures. And he never does anything less. Because he is omniscient, he is the only one who knows all of the facts and can thus adequately deal with the problem of evil and suffering. So God's character is demonstrated most fully in a universe where evil is allowed to continue for a time. And this entails injustice and suffering in our lives. It entails injustice and suffering that we see throughout the course of human history. But this is necessary for the final purpose of God bringing evil and suffering to an end as he fully judges them, and that's what's depicted in the tribulation period. And as a result, our conclusion is that God has a purpose for all of this, even though we may not fully understand it. But we must understand that because he is omniscient, he knows all the facts, facts that we do not know. Because he is perfectly righteous, all that he can do is consistent with his righteousness. Because he is love, he is going to do that which is best for his creatures. And so the conclusion is 
that God allows evil to exist and to continue in order to demonstrate something. And that comes to uh, the, the issue that we raised, the divine purpose of history. He is demonstrating his integrity in the context of Lucifer's revolt against God and the angelic conflict. But we also see that God is extremely gracious And there is never a time of judgment when his grace is not extended in a magnificent way. And his grace is always there to provide for us, to supply us our every need, and to sustain us in whatever the suffering may be. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things, to see how your justice works itself out during the tribulation period, but not apart from your mercy and not apart from your grace. That your grace has provided a perfect plan of salvation for us so that it is not dependent on who we are or what we do, but it's dependent upon uh, your character and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And in that salvation, that provision of salvation, that redemption accomplished on the cross, we can have eternal life by simply trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All that is necessary to be saved is that you trust in Christ as your Savior. You understand that Christ died for your sins and that you are trusting in him and him alone to provide for you eternal life. Father, we pray that Each of us will be challenged by what we study and we come to a greater understanding of how you are working in history, that you are working out your plan in history, and that in this perfect plan there is a perfect solution to the problem of evil, the problem of injustice, and the problem of suffering, and that ultimately your justice and your righteousness will prevail. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.